I don't know about you, but I am desperate for the Lord to meet with us and to move amongst us. We need to hear from him this morning in ways that only he can. If you did not get a handout, uh, Jason, the ridiculer over here, can get you hooked up. So the mocker, the scorner. All right. He's not very nice, is he? No, he's not. Not at all. It was, yeah. Still healing. So, all right. Praise the Lord. All right. Father, we do thank you so much for your mercies that are new every morning. God, we thank you for the richness of your grace. God, we thank you for your long suffering this morning. God, we thank you for your loving kindness. God, we beg you to speak to us, Lord, as the scriptures are open today. God, you know what each one of us needs to hear and why we need to hear it. And so, God, would you please, for your glory, accomplish in all of us today that which brings you the most glory. We ask it by faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So after Paul's initial greeting, starting in verse 3 of this chapter, Colossians chapter 1, we began getting to know this church at Colossae. And what we know so far is this was, as we said, a church of believers. And now we said that, you know, that sounds very basic. That sounds very obvious. Why do you mention that? Well, one of the things that we pointed out last week was, according to research, 45% of people who actually attend church regularly are not saved. And Paul said in verse 4 that he had heard of their faith in Christ Jesus. These were believers. We also said that this was a church of disciples. They had love to all the saints, which is a proof of a disciple indeed. And so it was just neat as I was thinking about Tony as she was making the announcement in terms of how can we encourage our brother Paul. Well, man, what a statement to say, who are all these people writing you? Why are you getting all this mail? What is the deal? This is my family. Right? This is one of the ways that they're going to know that he belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. So with those two realities being true, you might be wondering, okay, so if this was a church of believers, if this was a church of disciples, then why the need to write this letter? I mean, they seem to be doing pretty good. And here's our first key point this morning. This is very, very critical. And this is critical for everybody, whether you are being discipled or, or whether or not you are discipling. This is a very critical point. Salvation in Christ Jesus and growing as a disciple does not exempt us from spiritual attack. They were believers at Colossae. They were a church of disciples. But be not mistaken, they were under attack. Those things do not exclude anyone from, as a matter of fact, those realities attract it. You are a believer who is coming after Christ as a disciple indeed. Get ready. It's coming. And this was the case here. And this is what prompted Paul to write this letter. People will come to faith in Christ and start discipleship to only feel or, or, or sense like the whole world is against me. It is against you. The world is against you as a disciple. Satan is against you as a disciple. Your flesh is against you as a disciple. Listen, your flesh 
wants absolutely nothing to do with anything that starts with denying yourself. Your flesh says, no, thank you. I want no part of that. And just like we've needed to be taught and encouraged since our salvation and walking as disciples, so did these believers at Colossae. And this is what we're seeing in these opening verses so far of chapter 1. There are things that Paul was clearly encouraged about as it pertains to this church. We saw in verse 5 that their hope was laid up in heaven. And they had that hope, which as we clarified last week, that when we talk about hope in the biblical sense, we're talking about a genuine expectation. We're not talking about wishful thinking or I hope so kind of hope. We're talking about a genuine expectation. Marcy will be induced tonight. They are expecting a baby any moment now, praise the Lord. Call me. I don't care what time it is. Whatever, whenever this thing blows up, man. Call me, text me, I, I, I got to be there, okay? You'll be really close, that's right. You're close in the Southland, the, the Kansas side, yes. Okay, but they, but they had this hope. They had this hope because they believed the gospel. All right, we pick it up in verse 6 when we start today. This gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world. That's a very important statement, and we'll break down why. And bring it forth fruit as it doth also in you, since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth, as ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. Now, verse 8 concludes a sentence that began in verse 3. And as we're going to see next week, the next sentence is even longer because it begins in verse 9 and concludes in verse 17. And so Paul has a lot to say in a, in a short epistle to this church at Colossae. But for today, on our way to learning more about this church there are some truths that the Word of God unpacks for us as it pertains to the gospel. And there are more, but just for our time this morning, I just want to share three with you that are absolutely critical with respect to the gospel. The first one is this. The gospel is the truth. Notice what he says in verse 5. The truth of the gospel. It is the truth that... Christ Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. That is the truth. It's not legend. It's not fantasy. It's not fiction. It is the truth. The scriptures declare it, but so does history. History de declares it. Lee Strobel, who was once a staunch atheist, sought out to debunk this whole tale of Christianity. He was a former investigative journalist, I believe, for the Chicago Tribune, and he was confident that he would be able to do so just by just common logic. He was going to be able to just show the world how billions of people have been deceived over the years to believe this whole Jesus and, you know, resurrection and all that nonsense. But as he investigated, here's what he learned. 
And I'll just give you some of the highlights. He says, we have multiple independent reports of his death in the documents that make up the New Testament. And we have at least five ancient sources outside the Bible that corroborate that he died on a cross. Even the Jewish Talmud admits that Jesus was executed. One New Testament scholar, atheist Gerd Ludeman of Vanderbilt University calls Jesus' death on the cross an indisputable fact. Indisputable. Trying to prove that the resurrection was nothing more than a legend, here's what Strobel learned. In the ancient world, it took more than two generations for legends to develop and wipe out a solid core of historical facts. He learned that there wasn't enough time for the gospel to be a legend. For example, we know that the gospel of Mark that we study in this class was written during the time when eyewitnesses, listen, both friendly and unfriendly, were alive. In other words, there were people who were alive at the time of the gospel of Mark being written who could have either verified or falsified what was stated. That's, that's fact. Regarding the skepticism of the empty tomb, he pointed out the Romans didn't have a motive for stealing the body. They wanted Jesus dead. Jewish leaders of that day didn't have a motive. They wanted Jesus to stay dead. The disciples didn't have the means or the opportunity to steal the body. The most plausible explanation is that Jesus rose from the dead. That's the truth. Regarding whether people actually saw Jesus alive after the resurrection, we have nine ancient sources inside and outside the New Testament that corroborate the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus. This is an avalanche of historical evidence. What's more, the earliest report of the resurrection says 500 people saw him at that time. And here's what Lee Strobel concluded, and I have it in your notes. He said, disproving the resurrection wasn't easy. In fact, it was impossible. That's the truth. And that evidence led him to faith in Christ Jesus. So the gospel is the truth. Next, the gospel is accessible. Look at verse 6 again which is come unto you as it is in all the world. Underline that phrase, in all the world. That's critical. Because in the Great Commission, you and I are told to go ye therefore unto who? All, all, all nations. All nations. All ethnos. Now, you've heard skeptics, skeptics, who want to discredit the Bible, want to discredit Christ, want a, want a reason or an excuse to, to reject the truth of the gospel, they will ask you this question, well, what about the guy in the jungle in Africa? Well, what about that guy? What does verse 6 say? Where's the gospel? In all the world. In all the world. Look at verse 23. Paul says, if ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to who? Every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. So what about the God in the jungle of Africa? We're going to have that conversation. 
Now, does access look different in different places? Yes, it does. And it would take more time than we have this morning to unpack that. But what you need to understand is however God uses, whoever he uses to get the gospel to every creature is far beyond my pay grade. But I know what the Bible says. And I also know this, the gospel is readily accept, accessible in this country. I know that. And what we see about this accessibility affirms, listen, that God is not willing that any should perish. That's God's heart. If you're asking about the guy in the jungle in Africa, you should know first and foremost that God loves him. That God had him on his heart, on his mind, when he went to Calvary in the person of Christ Jesus. That's what you should know. God is not sitting in heaven doing all that he can, trying to figure out the best way to ensure that the guy in the jungle of Africa goes to hell. Listen, if that were the case, that would have been a complete waste of God's time at Calvary. A complete waste. And listen, we can talk about the guy in the jungle in Africa, and we can also talk about the guy on the streets in Amsterdam, who is as lost. God's not willing that any of them should perish. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells you who is behind all that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, it is the God of this world. That would be Satan. Three, the gospel is powerful. He says in verse 6, and bringeth forth fruit. That is the gospel. Listen. The gospel radically changes mankind. The gospel radically changes mankind. It changes people. By God's grace, for his glory alone, we led a man to Christ on Long Island. Um, and I had the privilege of discipling him. And what a, what a privilege that was. And uh, God used a, a situation that only God could use to bring him to the end of himself, to bring him face-to-face -face with his insufficiency and his, his recognition of, of his sinful state and his inability to, to be God. And God humbled him, and with tears in his eyes, he cried out to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior and then began growing as a disciple. By his own admission, he would tell you now if he was here that before he met Christ, he was a horrible man. Uh, he has told me on numerous occasions that he is amazed that his wife didn't divorce him before he got saved because he was cruel. He was vicious. He was cold. He was, he was hateful. He was hard. All of that. And then he met Christ. He believed the gospel. And that guy, <laughs> his wife was like, who is this? <laughs> but I'm all in. <laughs> The gospel is powerful. It changes people. Day after day, week after week, month after month, I had a front row seat of watching God change this man. But it started with him believing the truth of the gospel, which the Bible tells us in Romans 1.16, Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is what? The power 
of God unto salvation to who? Everyone, including the guy in the jungle in Africa and the guy on the street in Amsterdam that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now that brings us to this. The gospel is the truth. It is accessible. It is powerful. But here's the question to you this morning. Who did you preach it to this week? It's the truth. It's accessible. It's powerful. But who heard it from your lips this week? As a fellowship, we said early this year that we as a fellowship are going to preach the gospel to someone at least once a week. The same gospel that is true, that is accessible, that is powerful. How are you doing with that? Like I wasn't just like wasting air when I said that. I meant it. How are we doing with that? Now I want to ask you what I believe to be a very deep question for you to reflect on. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 3 and 4, who is hiding the gospel to them that are lost? The God of this world. Okay? That would be Satan. So here's the question for you and I to think about. What work are we doing when we choose not to preach the gospel? What work are we doing as believers in Jesus Christ when we choose and refuse to preach the gospel? How are we not in cahoots? How are we not working with the enemy to keep the gospel hid to them that are lost? We have it. We know it's true. Everything that we talked about, you agree that it's true. You agree that it's accessible. You agree that it's powerful. The problem is, for too many of us, we just don't preach it. Which is exactly what Satan would have us do. Oh, you're an introvert. You don't know enough. What about this or that? And we just say, okay, I'll just, I'll just be quiet. Satan's just perfect. You keep going to church. You keep stuffing your head with knowledge. You keep filling in your wide margin. You keep taking all the LFBI classes. You keep, going, you keep doing all that. But just don't tell people because I'm trying to keep that hid. Work with me. Does that make sense? Listen, believers give place to the devil when they do not preach the gospel. We all do. Aren't you glad that someone preached it to you? <laughs> Aren't you glad that someone wasn't quiet with you when they needed to speak up and speak out with the gospel to you? I know that I am. The church at Colossae, they were exhibit A for the gospel that is truthful, accessible, and powerful. They had believed it. Although Paul had not reached them physically, they had access to the gospel. And the power of the gospel was transforming them. Look at verse 6. Which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you, since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. The church at Colossae, this was a church of converts. 
This was a church of believers. This was a church of disciples. But it was also a church of converts. Now, when we typically hear that term, we think, it, we think about it in terms of an unbeliever being converted into salvation, which is one of the definitions of that word convert. But the Bible tells you that there's more. Because that word clearly has additional meaning. Look, at, look in Luke 22 on your notes, verses 31 and 32. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon. In other words, I need your undivided attention. I need you to really focus. Because what I'm about to tell you is very important. Just why he mentions the name twice. Behold, and you can do a study on that in terms of when, when God mentions a name twice, we don't have time. But behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Now, what we know is clearly by this time, Peter was a believer. So he, he was already, we would say, he was already saved. So clearly that's not what he was talking about. He had faith and he had brethren. So that meant that he was in the family of God already. So that, that so conversion or converted can't be pointing to him being converted to faith in Christ. That was already done. The conversion spoken of there referred to the radical change that would occur as a result of the colossal failure that he was about to experience, which is why Jesus said, Simon, Simon, because he knew what was coming. He knew that Peter was about to taste failure of his own doing that was going to be so incredible and so intense that it was going to tempt him to completely quit. Like, I mean, there are times, if you're honest, there, there have been times in your life as a believer where you have grieved God so bad, where you have failed so poorly, and when, you and when you stepped away from everything that you did and you saw the damage that you had done, you were so crushed that you thought, you know what, I'm done. <laughs> because if I can fail like that, if I can grieve the Spirit of God like that, Man, Lord, just take me home now. <laughs> but what you didn't know and what Peter didn't know was God, as he does, meets us in that place and says, now I can use you. Because before then, this was the guy who was what? Beating his chest. Though all men be offended. Oh, not me. <laughs> I'm not like all men. I, I'll never deny. Come on. Because the Peter before he denied Jesus three times, and the Peter after it were two different men. Converted. Gases that turn into water are, or water that turns into ice are called what? Conversions. Right? But there are believers, listen, who have yet to be converted. They're believers. Saved. Seated in heavenly places but they haven't been converted. Saved, yes. Transformed, no. These were converts at Colossae because the gospel was bringing forth fruit in them. 
We closed last week by saying discipleship is the strongest evidence of salvation. And I still hold to that, but let's qualify it further. Look at John 15, 8. Jesus said, Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. Now, John 15 is very, very familiar to us, but I think what is often overlooked if you look at this, this, this chapter and, and, you, and you just look at it from a Bible study perspective, what is undeniable is the context of John 15 is discipleship. That's the context. You cannot miss that. And this is amplified in verse 16, which this is one of those texts that Calvinists will often go to as a proof text to justify the doctrine of Calvinism, which is a tragic interpretation of the passage. Verse 16 says of John 15, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. Listen, during this time, rabbis did not walk around choosing people to follow them. Jesus did that, but rabbis didn't do that. And what Jesus did was he chose them not as believers. They were already that. Remember, in John chapter 1, they had found the Messiah. <laughs> that was already settled. So Jesus did not choose them as believers. He chose them as disciples, already believers. And then he ordained them as apostles, as he did in the Gospels. That's the context of John 15. It's not salvation. That's clear. You can't miss that. And he did that, that they would bring forth fruit and that that fruit should remain. Here's where we're going with this. Discipleship is the strongest evidence of salvation because, listen, it is the clearest evidence of transformation. That's why. That's why. Discipleship says that the person has been and is being converted. Discipleship says that. Fruit is the proof of that. Now, as we're coming down the home stretch here, we see it in verse 7. Paul continues, As you also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is for you, a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. So according to verse 7, they learned of the gospel through Epaphras, a fellow servant of Paul. So if they learned the gospel from Epaphras and, and, and Paul uh, calls him uh, a faithful minister of Christ, then that will point to the fact that Epaphras was both the planter and pastor of the church at Colossae. That's what we can extract from verse 7. Epaphras, as we just said in verse 8, was... We see it was Paul's source for what was happening in the church at Colossae. So that's how Paul knew what was going on there and what was coming against them. And as we said, what prompted the writing of this epistle. But him being a fellow servant of Paul's, he was a faithful minister. He was a faithful brother. And we saw last week Paul mention the faithful brethren at Colossae in verse 2. Epaphras was a faithful minister. So Paul's acknowledgement of Epaphras as being that 
would have been a resounding endorsement to the church at Colossae to listen, listen to this man. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't think at this time of a higher endorsement from the Apostle Paul. And Epaphras got it. And one of the reasons Paul did this was, listen, if the church at Colossae was going to endure the winds of false doctrine, they were going to have to listen to the teachings of a faithful minister in Epaphras. Paul says, you've got to listen to him. And here's a key point. This is very critical. It takes faithful men to have faithful men. 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. It takes faithful men to have faithful men. Faithful men are the ones who teach others also and make disciples. But the final observation about this church at Colossae was this. This was a church of examples. This was a church of examples. Epaphras declared to Paul and Timothy about the church at Colossae in verse 8 about their love in the spirit. And this is the second mention already in these opening eight verses about this being a loving church. He mentioned their love to all the saints in verse 4, and now here again in verse 8, their love in the Spirit. What this tells us is, listen, this was a people who were walking in the Spirit of God. Because the first trait that is mentioned in the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. And Epaphras declared their love in the Spirit. This was a loving people. But in terms of them being a church of examples, we should consider how Paul concluded that great chapter of 1 Corinthians 13 where he talks about charity, which is the highest expression of love. It's sacrificial agape love. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. Now, look at this church one more time at Colossae. And this is why we say they were examples. Paul mentioned their faith in Christ Jesus in verse 4. He mentioned their love to all the saints in verses 4 and their love in the spirit in verse 8. He mentioned their hope in verse 5. They had all three. They had all three. But Paul said the greatest of these is charity. That is sacrificial love. As I close this morning, I'm just going to tell you that um, not that I'm anyone or, or anything, but I am increasingly growing disappointed and even disgusted with people who know so much about the Bible. They know so much about the Bible. They have all the Bible knowledge that one could have, but are remedial when it comes to loving people. Remedial. Not only do they not know how to love people, they have no interest in learning how. 
There's no urgency. Yes, I know the Bible. I know it well. As a matter of fact, if, if, if you are not doctrinally on point, I will be sure to correct you. If you're off in the slightest, I will be sure that you understand that you didn't say that right. You missed this point. You should have covered that. While they have a wife and they have children who are at home who are grieving because this guy who is so doctrinally astute, he's a doctrinal scholar, but he has no idea how to love his wife. No clue how to love his children. No clue how to love people, but he's really bright. And we have women who can fit that too. And there are people all around them who are tripping over them on their way to hell. But that is not of interest to them because, well, the gospel is just too simple. Let's, let's, let's talk about things that are so very deep so I can stimulate my doctrinal interests. Forget my coworker who is hellbound and my neighbor who is hellbound. And forget that. Give me more knowledge for crying out loud. Please hear me. Something is severely wrong when that is the case. Something is severely wrong. Here's why. Bible knowledge gained without a spirit-filled walk only produces pride and arrogance. That is all that it produces. Some of the most prideful and arrogant men that I have ever been in the presence of were men who have forgotten more Bible than I will probably ever know. But they were full of pride and arrogance. But they were right. And you weren't. A carnal man will always be deficient in love because you can only love people by walking in the Spirit of God. The flesh cannot do that. If it tells you otherwise, it's lying. It's very selfish in this pursuit. As I close, I want to just share this with you. One of the many reasons that I so treasure our pastor, Sam Miles, and I do treasure him very highly, is he is very mighty in the scriptures. No doubt about it. I mean, I look at our LFBI notes. If Sam's teaching LFBI, his notes are about that thick. Mine are about that thick. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the guy's brilliant. I mean, Sam's mind, he, he has an engineering mind. But as mighty as he is in the scriptures, he is as mighty in love. The tears I have seen roll down that man's face for people, 
what Sam will do for you, what I see Sam do for people, time that I know he doesn't have. When people go, Sam, do you have a minute? And what they really mean, do you have 60 minutes? And he will endure that and not complain about it. He loves people. Paul heard about their love for all the saints and their love in the Spirit. The greatest of these is charity. Let's pray.